Welcome to the Outthinker Podcast. Each week, we talk with forward-looking strategists and innovators that are challenging the status quo, leading the future of business, and shaping our world. I'm your host, Kyan Krippendorf, founder of the Outthinker Strategy Network. Peter Klein is a professor of entrepreneurship at Baylor University's Business School, and he's the faculty director of Baylor Baugh Center for Entrepreneurship and Free Enterprise. He is also adjunct professor of strategy and management at the Norwegian School of Economics and Carl Menger Research Fellow at the Mises Institute. His research focuses on the links between entrepreneurship, strategy, and organization with applications to innovation, diversification, vertical coordination. He's worked in healthcare and public policy. His work has appeared in numerous top journals from the Academy of Management Review to the Sloan Management Review. His 2012 book called Organizing Entrepreneurial Judgment received the 2014 Best Book Award from the Foundation for Economic Education. His upcoming book, Why Managers Matter, which is being published in October, October 2022 focuses on how even though the centralized startup culture has become increasingly popular in the last few decades, the creative use of authority and hierarchy helps companies to be more agile and flexible, enabling educated, motivated people and teams to thrive. He's also held faculty positions at other universities, including University of Missouri's Division of Applied Social Science, the Truman School of Public Affairs, the Copenhagen Business School, and other academic posts. In this episode, he argues why this movement that we're all experiencing toward decentralized organizations, flat hierarchies, no hierarchies, holacracies, are actually not really flat. He gives us a clear reason as to when a hierarchical centralized model is better than a decentralized model. He talks about what organizations need to do to unlock greater levels of entrepreneurial behavior and why making profits depends on on embracing uncertainty. Ladies and gentlemen, Peter Klein. Peter, thank you so much for being here. It is great to get to talk to you. Yeah, thank you for having me. So I wanted to open up with what's your definition of strategy? I really like the definition that was offered by Richard Remelt, who wrote one of my all-time favorite strategy books. And it's been a guest on this podcast as well. We've been lucky to have him, yeah. Oh, fantastic. So I really love Remelt's Good Strategy, Bad Strategy textbook. I haven't had a chance to read his newest book, but I'm really looking forward to reading that as well. You know, I think of strategy as an integrated set of actions or policies designed to achieve some specific aim. But what I like about Remelt's treatment is how he distinguishes between a diagnosis, in other words, trying to figure out what is the problem that our strategy aims to solve, what he calls a guiding policy, an overall philosophy for approaching this problem, and coherent actions, specific steps that we can take right away or in the future that are consistent with our guiding policy. Because a lot of people mistake strategy for objectives, or mission or vision. I really like the nitty gritty realistic aspects of thinking about trade-offs, constraints. You know, what are we willing to give up in order to accomplish a particular strategic aim? Pie in the sky. We're going to do all things for all people. We just need to work 110%. I mean, that's not strategy. That's just sort of pontificating. Right, right. Yes. 
in a fantasy ideal world. Exactly. All right, great. And what got you interested in strategy? So I was trained as an academic economist. My PhD advisor, a guy named Oliver Williamson, who went on to win the Nobel Prize in Economics for work in organizational design. And so I was really interested in what makes organizations work and how they're structured. But at the same time, I was very interested in entrepreneurship and innovation. Ultimately, I care a lot about public policy. How do we use norms and rules and laws and regulations to make the world a better place? And I think business plays a critical role in improving the quality of life. And that comes mainly through entrepreneurship and innovation. So I was always trying to bring together organization, strategy, and entrepreneurship. And I really didn't know exactly how to do it until I started thinking seriously about the way that strategy itself is entrepreneurial, meaning it's forward-looking. It operates under conditions of high uncertainty. And entrepreneurship is really about how decision makers exercise that intuitive judgment, relying on how to judge the balance between formal analysis that's data-driven and quantitative, and that ultimately tacit and subjective, forward-looking gut feeling that can also be very valid and useful. It can be a guide to successful decision-making under uncertainty. Figuring out that balance between the sort of softer and harder modes of analysis, to me, that's really the key to being a good strategist. I think you're pointing to something that I heard you talk about. I did my undergrad at Wharton Business School, studied finance, and I was taught that there is an efficient market and over a longish term, you could not achieve excess returns because the information is there. And I think that you apply that a little bit to entrepreneurship. I've heard you say something like, without uncertainty, there'll be no profits. Do you know what I'm talking about? Can you explain that to me? I do. Yeah. The efficient markets hypothesis, that idea in which you were trained, it's very powerful. And I think it points us to an important insight, which is that it is very difficult for people to earn sustained profits over the long run, unless you have some significant restriction on entry or competition. There's not likely to be a lot of $20 bills just lying on the sidewalk. People will have a tendency to pick them up. So it's not easy to be successful and to have a sustained competitive advantage. But does it follow that it's literally impossible because markets are efficient, everything gets priced out, at the end of the day, all the $20 bills will be picked up such that there's no point even in looking for them? To that I say no, because of, as you said, uncertainty. To carry the metaphor forward, when I explain this to my students, I say, imagine that there are a few $20 bills on the sidewalk, but they're not easy to find. In other words, you're walking down the street and you see a little green corner of paper sticking out from under a rock. Now, it might be a $20 bill, but the only way to find out for sure is to go to the store and purchase a $10 shovel and spend $5 worth of your time to dig it out. If you spend 15 bucks and it turns out you're right, it is a $20 bill, then you've reaped a $5 profit. But say it turns out to be a gum wrapper or a piece of trash, well, then you've earned a $15 loss. The point is when we're engaged in strategy, when we're taking bold and decisive action, we never know for sure if we're going to get the result that we anticipated. Now, some people are very good at dealing with ambiguity and deep uncertainty, and those are the ones who tend to earn economic profits and whose organizations can achieve an advantage. But some people are not as skilled at bearing that uncertainty, at exercising that judgment. In a world of perfectly efficient markets, no one would be able to succeed unless by luck. And I don't think that's the world that we live in. Hmm. So does that mean that some individuals or some firms are more tuned 
I'm not going to word this eloquently because it's just coming to me. You know, there's probably like an entrepreneurial phase and then a non-entrepreneurial phase. Stick with digging for gold, right? There was the gold rush and the first people, the gold rush, they discovered the unexpected and they became wealthy. But then as more people came, there was less uncertainty and there was less gold. And so could you say that some companies are more entrepreneurial or more attuned being able to absorb the uncertainty risk in the first phase? I think the answer is definitely yes, but I would try to shift from a metaphor of discovery like panning for gold because the gold exists in the ground objectively. It's just waiting for the first person to come along and find it. I would rather use a metaphor like creation or construction. In other words, it's not the case that all of the profits earned from selling iOS devices were sort of sitting out there waiting for the first person to encounter them. No, rather, Steve Jobs and his colleagues at Apple, they had to take risks. They had a vision of what a future in which iPhones and other devices are ubiquitous would look like, and they were willing to put their money, so to speak, where their mouth was and to take the steps necessary to give it a shot. Now, they might have been wrong. And of course, Steve Jobs often was wrong. The old timers remember the Newton and some of Steve Jobs' experiences at Next. Steve Jobs was already gone at the time the Newton was introduced. But you get my point that it isn't always possible ahead of time to predict perfectly which of these ideas are going to be successful. And unless you're willing to put something on the table, have skin in the game, you're never going to find out if, in fact, your abilities to anticipate the future are as sound as you think they are. What I think you're well known for is entrepreneurship as judgment. Is that what you mean? Judgment as opposed to something else? Yeah, judgment in a sort of technical sense, as it's used by entrepreneurship researchers and teachers, refers to this willingness to make decisions in conditions where you don't have some sort of predictive model. You don't have a mathematical or statistical algorithm that tells you exactly what the probabilities are and so forth. You know, casino gambling is not judgment because you don't know what number is going to come up when you roll the dice, but if it's a normal die, the probability of any number coming up is one over six. Everybody knows that. It's just a question of how much you're willing to bet. In business, in most areas of life, you don't really know all the possible outcomes. You certainly don't have probabilities you can attach to them. Rather, you exercise a kind of intuitive understanding, maybe based on deep historical or factual knowledge, based on your confidence in your own ability, what trends you see on the horizon. But so judgment is purposeful decision-making under conditions where you don't really have access to that technical analysis such that anyone with that same information would make exactly the same judgment. So thinking about what that means in the context of entrepreneurship, thinking about how firms can learn to make better judgments from the point of view of achieving a sustained competitive advantage as strategists, that's what animates my larger research program. Interesting. And just off the record, we're kind of going in a different direction than we originally planned, but what the heck? Yes, I know, I know. But I think it's going to come back because I think that this question, which I'm really curious about with your new book, what I'm envisioning is there's an entrepreneur that's using his or her intuition, connecting dots, recognizing patterns, and willing to take a risk. And all of those patterns are in this one person's brain. Now, when we have the firm and it's got lots of different brains, we have to create pattern recognition or freedom and connect people people coordinate people in order for them to create that organizational pattern recognition. And we've had people here on this podcast talking about hire comes up often. We've got the holacracy, you've got the decentralized autonomous organizations, this flattening, which as I understand it, part of the intention of which is to enable the organization to act more entrepreneurially. But tell us about this. Are companies becoming flatter? Is that the right way to look at it? And is that the right direction. And if so, why is that happening now? 
Great questions. So what you're hinting at is within a large complex organization with multiple layers, how do you get this sort of distribution of judgment or something that is like judgment throughout the whole organization? And that's what led to my interest in organizational design, in managerial hierarchies, because the traditional understanding of hierarchy is that it's completely top down. And so that seems like it's not taking advantage of local knowledge and incentives and empowerment at lower levels of the organization that would in turn allow for a lot of creation or discovery, if you like, of new ideas, new technologies. So isn't it better to make that hierarchy go away, to flatten the organization so that everyone is fully empowered to be an autonomous actor and so forth? So let's break that down a little bit. Yes, of course, you could imagine a world in which all of us is literally an autonomous actor, but that would be a world where we're all entrepreneurs. We all own our own businesses and we coordinate with each other through the market by buying and selling, you know, procuring and trading and so forth. But we live in a world in which a lot of people are within organizations. Why? Why aren't we all independent contractors? Because there are some kinds of coordination and cooperation that are better affected or better managed where there is some centralized control, not command and control. It's not the army where someone gives orders down the line and orders are obeyed, but rather we do need some structure or some process for figuring out, okay, who's going to do what, which individuals are assigned to which tasks, how do we make sure that what one person is doing is coordinated with what another person is doing so all the different pieces fit together, how do we resolve conflict or disputes, how do we monitor performance and make sure that people who are performing well get appropriate rewards. One of the things that my co-author and I try to lay out in our new book is a model of hierarchy not as command and control, as effective design. The role of the manager is to design, implement, enforce the organizational rules of the game. In other words, you're not playing the game for people. You're not making everyone's decision for him or for her, but rather you're putting people in the right places where they can use their abilities, their human capital, if you like. They can exercise judgment to the best of their ability in a way that allows us to achieve a common end, producing goods and services, you know, for Apple or Tesla or whatever our organization might be. And that doesn't always mean fewer levels or fewer layers between the top and the bottom. One of the problems with a lot of these super flat hierarchies like the ones that you mentioned is that you often find more rather than less micromanagement from the top. In the book, we quote this really interesting email from Elon Musk to his employees saying that everyone at Tesla is empowered to make decisions. And he says, everyone at Tesla should be one step away from the boss, me. In other words, you don't have to go through a manager. If you want to talk to me, you can send me an email and I'll respond. You want to see me in person, you can meet me in my office, you can call me, you don't have to go through anybody, you're only one step away from the CEO. The problem with that is not all of us want to work in an environment where the CEO is only one step away from us. Do you want Elon Musk showing up in your office? Do you want him peering over your shoulder? Do you want him ready to contact you when he's not a fan of something that you did? Sometimes a little bit of buffering, a little bit more layering can actually make it easier for people to be empowered to do their jobs comfortably, to do their jobs well. And I can imagine then if we took a little bit more into if the role of a manager changes to 
this organizational design and monitoring as opposed to directing. Does strategy change? Does leadership change? You know, is leadership no longer? This is the hill that we're going to climb up. We had Ajay Banga, CEO of MasterCard. He talked about the city on the hill and giving people a hill to march to. Is that no longer the role? Look, clearly an important role of leadership is motivation and inspiration. Painting that picture, describing the vision, articulating that image of how the world will look when we do the things that we've all agreed to do. Clearly that plays an important role in motivating people, in inspiring everyone to come to work every day, to feel like what they do is important. I would argue that that is not the most essential part of the leadership role. Because again, it doesn't deal with the realities of the situations on the ground, the constraints that we face. I mean, look, employees, especially in the 21st century, are not so naive to believe that nobody else out there is trying to eat our lunch. We live in a hyper-competitive environment. No matter how inspirational my leader's vision of the future is, I know that the leader of every other company is painting that same kind of a picture to their employees. So what will motivate me to get out of bed in the morning, to go to work, to do the things that I want to do? Because my leader has a very realistic set of strategies, again, defined as an overarching philosophy and a set of coherent actions that will actually allow us to be better than our rivals. We have a better product. We have a better business model. We have access to markets that our competitors don't have. We have some source of sustained competitive advantage. Articulating what that is and helping to figure out, you know, what do we do to make sure we achieve it and maintain it? Who needs to be in what roles? How do we need to incentivize people, monitor people? How do we structure production? To me, those things are more important than the compelling vision. Because look, people are pretty savvy and they can see through a sales pitch that sounds a little bit too much like a sales pitch. You know, one temptation for leaders is to get too caught up in the imagery, in articulating a beautiful vision, but not giving people good reasons to believe that that vision is achievable. I got you. Yeah. I'm kind of seeing it as there are a list of jobs for a manager to be done, including inspiration, coordination, deciding who does what and all of that. In some circumstances, the hierarchy makes more sense and some a decentralized approach makes more sense. And you talk also about technologies and coordination costs and the theory of the firm and this kind of battle between the hierarchy and the marketplace. Although I think that there are also other things other than marketplaces. There are communities and ecosystems and things like that. Like in the military, I can see the hierarchy, especially in wartime, staying, right? I can see a sales force in a bank, you know, maybe less so. I don't know. But where do we expect to see the hierarchy making more sense? And where do we expect to see a non-hierarchy? making more sense. So let me answer in a roundabout way, first by giving one of my favorite examples of the modern managerial hierarchy in a place where you wouldn't expect to find it, namely Wikipedia. Everyone's favorite free online encyclopedia. I use this in my class, as many instructors do, as an example of a radically decentralized, disaggregated mode of production. It's not the old Encyclopedia Britannica with an editor who assigns topic editors, who assigns writers, and so forth. It's totally bottom-up. It's totally spontaneous. Truly a bossless organization if there ever was one. But wait, there's a guy who actually was a student of a colleague of mine who was teaching at Auburn University, a young student named Jimmy Wales. Jimmy Wales was in a class where they were talking about the economy, and my friend was explaining the theories of the famous Austrian economist Friedrich Hayek on the market as a spontaneous order and the need for bottom-up rather than top-down decision-making. And this young student, Jimmy Wales, was inspired 
inspired by this to create an open source encyclopedia. So Jimmy Wales is currently the head of the Wikipedia Foundation, but he is the designer, the inventor of Wikipedia. And when I tell my students Wikipedia has an inventor, has a designer, they're sort of shocked. What do you mean? I mean, it's open source. Well, of course it's open source. Jimmy Wales did not write all of the entries to Wikipedia. What Jimmy Wales and his friends did is they wrote the code that allows people to create an online open source encyclopedia. One of the great things about Wikipedia for us as users, I mean, the content, well, it's not totally a wild, wild west, but there's lots of content on all kinds of obscure subjects. But compared to other places on the internet, it's all very well organized. There's a common format. It's easy to read. The articles look the same. The cross-referencing system is standardized. That code was written by Jimmy Wales and a team of designers, which then they provided the structure within which Wikipedia could grow. And even as your hardcore Wikipedia users will know, there are what they call super users and moderators. When there is a dispute on Wikipedia and people are flaming each other in the background about getting some piece of information right, there are procedures in place for resolving disputes about Wikipedia content that were part of the design of this open source coded encyclopedia. So even in a case like that, you need some structure. But again, the role of the hierarchy is not to produce the content, but rather to create the system within which the content can be produced. Now, to your question, under what circumstances do various kinds of hierarchical models work the best? Well, in the book, we point to the concept of interdependence or interdependency, as some people call it, across different jobs, tasks, roles within an organization. Think of Henry Ford's assembly line. So yes, the genius of the assembly line was giving more autonomy to each person on the line to specialize in the one task that that person does really well. One person builds the chassis and then the chassis goes onto the next person who attaches the engine. It goes onto the next person who attaches, you know, the steering wheel and so forth. So these tasks are interdependent. Exactly. They have to fit. The pieces have to be the same size. They have to match. They have to be sequenced in a certain way so that one station doesn't become overwhelmed or be holding back the other stations. You can't have a weak link in the chain that makes the whole thing fall apart. So that's a case where, of course, you don't want to tell each person on the assembly line exactly how to do her job, but you do need to make sure that there's an appropriate amount of standardization or coordination so that all the pieces fit together. Now, for some companies where you have highly disaggregated sort of autonomous projects like some software companies, for example, that have highly independent projects, Valve, the video game company, is often used as one of these classic cases of a radically disaggregated, decentralized, flat organization. But mostly what Valve produced, I mean, now Valve is more of a platform than a content provider, but even when Valve was creating content, you had small independent software projects, the success of which did not depend on what was going on with the other project. So you have weaker interdependence in a case like that, you can have a lot more autonomy, a lot more disaggregation, and a much flatter structure. It's when you have these connections between tasks or jobs or projects, that's where you need a little bit more, not command and control, but you need a referee, an arbiter, you need someone who maybe can decide who's going to perform which role, someone who can make sure things are working well, and discreetly, occasionally intervene when things are not going well. Fascinating. I love that. Yeah, the interdependence, and then I'm also hearing exceptions or exception management when the rules haven't considered a scenario, then we need judgment. 
Oh, yeah. In some of my own roles, I'm a professor, but I serve as the chair of my department. I'm editor of a journal, supervising a team of associate editors. I'm not doing all the work that everybody does on a day-to-day basis, but I spend most of my time mitigating conflict or solving special cases, helping out where something arises that's outside of the ordinary. In a purely bossless organization, that can only happen you know, autonomously, and sometimes those conflicts don't get resolved and the thing falls apart. Ah, yeah, that's really helpful. Good thread which our listeners can then pull on to start understanding the different scenarios in which hierarchy is a better option. I have so many more questions that we don't have time for. We're reaching the top of our time with you. What are you working on now? And what can people do to follow you and learn from you? Yeah, so I'm on social media at Peter G. Klein, K-L-E-I-N. You can find me on Twitter and all the usual places. And my website is PeterGKlein.com. You can see my academic work and some of my more popular writings there as well. I'm very interested, like a lot of folks, on this recent turn towards social responsibility within the business world. And I'm going to say something. I know you like to have radical thought on this podcast. I'm going to say something that will shock some of your listeners. My own position is sort of close to the position famously articulated by Milton Friedman in a 1970 New York Times article claiming that the social responsibility of business is to make profits. That is sort of the bete noir, if you like, of the social responsibility and stakeholder movement, which argues that Friedman's view is an old fashioned, you know, completely obsolete position that we've grown beyond as management thinkers. And I want to say that Friedman was actually onto something. And I'm sort of interested to figure out why companies have embraced this sort of social responsibility turn. People even use the phrase now, you know, woke companies or woke capitalism. Why are firms moving? Moving in this direction? Is it because they think doing so is profitable? Is it because top decision makers have suddenly woken up to their responsibility to do good for society? Or is there something else at play? I think there's some dynamics associated with how companies are managed, how companies are regulated, how our social media world works that have led companies to embrace a mission that may really not be well suited for their capabilities. So I think my next book is going to be on that topic. Mm, fascinating. But I think they could be consistent theories. They do it for the money or they do it for not the money. But I'd love to hear where you land. That's awesome. Yeah, thank you. I've really enjoyed our conversation and would love to have the opportunity to continue it at some other time. Great. Thank you, Peter, for being here. And thanks for the work you do and for taking the time to share it with us. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me on. Thank you to our guests. Thank you to our producers, Karina Reyes and Zach Ness, our editor and the rest of the team. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. I'm your host, Kaihan Krippendorf. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next week with another episode of OutThinkers.